1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. At this point, I think most of our listeners have probably heard that we launched a new podcast in July called This Day in History Class. One of the side effects of starting a show that is daily and talks about something that happened on that day in history, is that as you're figuring out what to talk about, uh, you find episodes that are also going to be good on Stuff You Missed in History class, and that's how today's episode came to be. August 27th, 2018 is the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Ambos Nogales, and that was an international incident at the US-Mexico border in Arizona on the United States side, and in Sonora on the Mexican side, So now you know what I'm going to talk about on the August 27th episode of This Day in History class, but we are going to cover it in way more detail here because that show is only five minutes long. Also, I know we have lots of teachers listening with their students and parents listening with maybe younger kids. There is one bit of strong language that comes up in this episode in some quoted material. I don't really consider it to be a swear, but I know other people would have the opposite opinion, like maybe my mom. So. Uh, yeah, like we spelled out the word butt, B-U-T-T, when we were children because that was a bad <gasps> really? word. Really? Yeah. So uh, if you think that might apply to you, maybe give this one an, an advanced listen to just make sure that that one particular thing is not going to be an issue.
1: But it is not the word butt, to be clear. It is not butt. <laughs> So we walked through some very basic history of the American Southwest recently when we talked about the Zoot Suit Riots, but we know not everyone listens to every episode, so we're going to give you a quick recap. After Europeans arrived in North America, what is now the southwestern United States was claimed by Spain. New Spain declared its independence in 1810, which kicked off a war that lasted until 1821. The war ended when Spain finally recognized Mexico as an independent nation. The Mexican state of Sonora was formally established in 1824.
0: Then the Mexican-American War began in 1846, and it ended in 1848. After that, Mexico ceded a large stretch of land to the United States. This included a lot of what would become the southwestern states, but it did not include the southernmost parts of Arizona or New Mexico. Mexico, The United States bought that territory in the Glasden Purchase, which was finalized in 1854, and Arizona became a state in 1912. It's obviously a super quick recap that is hundreds of years of history in two paragraphs. Condensed. Not even including anything about the indigenous people who were already living there.
1: So two cities, both named Nogales, were established, one on each side of the border after the Glasden Purchase, but before Arizona's statehood. The name Nogales is derived from the Spanish word for walnut, and collectively, the two cities are called Ambos Nogales or Both Nogales. These cities were established after a railroad was planned that would connect Mexico and the United States, running from Tucson, almost due south to Guaymas on the Gulf of California.
0: On the U.S. side, Jacob and Isaac Isaacson established a trading post at the border along the proposed train route in 1880. At first, they called it Isaacson, but they changed the name to Nogales on June 4th, 1883. On the Mexican side, the Mexican government authorized the establishment of a customs office at the border along the same train route on August 2nd of 1880. That train line was finished in 1882. Soon, Ambos Nogales was the most important border
1: crossing between Arizona and Sonora. Its population grew quickly, and by the late 19-teens, there were nearly 4,000 people living on the Sonora side, and a little more than 5,000 people living in Arizona.
0: These two cities were divided only by a broad boulevard that was called International Street. There were only two visible signs that International Street was really an international border. One was Boundary Monument 122. This was an obelisk. It still stands today, it marks the exact position of the border, and that replaced an earlier marker that had fallen apart in 1893. The other clue was this wide expanse of empty territory on either side of the line. Mexico had built Nogales-Sonora with buildings that were at least 50 feet or 15 meters away from the border. Buildings in Nogales, Arizona were initially built a lot closer but in the 1890s, by presidential proclamation, everything that was within 60 feet or 18 meters of the line was torn down. This was an attempt to curb smuggling, basically with the idea that without a bunch of buildings to hide in between, it would be harder to smuggle, did not actually do much to deter smuggling.
1: (laughs) For the first decades of the city's histories, it was really easy to cross from one Nogales to another. You just walked across the street. That wide expanse of empty land was also a popular place for both Mexican and American children to play. Even though these were two cities, one in the U.S. and the other in Mexico, they functioned more like one binational community that happened to straddle an international border. Citizens of one country often had families, jobs, or property on the other.
0: This pretty much open border in ambos Nogales became increasingly guarded starting around 1910, at the beginning of the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution was a long and extremely complicated conflict that involved numerous revolutionary factions. It led to millions of deaths. Violence associated with the revolution also threatened American cities all along the border with Mexico, including Nogales, Arizona.
1: Mexican border cities like Nogales, Sonora, also became particularly important during the Revolution because controlling them made it easier for revolutionaries to cross into the United States to purchase weapons and supplies. In 1913, constitutionalist forces lay siege to Nogales, Sonora, which meant that the Mexican Revolution was being fought literally across the street from an American city. After several days of fighting, in which several American soldiers and civilians were wounded by stray gunfire, the federal forces in Nogales, Sonora, crossed the border and surrendered to the Americans.
0: The violence continued in the area into 1915 during Pancho Villa's campaign in northern Mexico, and this led to troops from the United States Army being deployed all over the border to try to protect Americans against the possible spillover of violence for Mexico, During Villa's campaign, the governor of Sonora also put up a barbed wire fence through Nogales to act as a deterrent, but that was taken down after just a few months.
1: Although Pancho Villa's men didn't ultimately invade Nogales, Arizona, there was a lot of tension between Mexicans and Americans as his campaign was going on. There were understandable fears and frustrations stemming from being right across the border from an ongoing revolution for five solid years. But these tensions were also fueled by racism. This erupted into a riot in August of 1915 when a white mob in Arizona tried to force Mexicans across the border into Sonora.
0: And then on March 9th, 1916, Pancho Villa attacked Columbus, New Mexico, Although Ambos Nogales wasn't directly involved in this, the attack nearly took the United States and Mexico to war, and it made things even more tense in numerous American cities near the border. This was one of the factors in the Bisbee deportation, which we talked about earlier this year.
1: After the attack on Columbus, the United States mounted what was known as the Punitive Expedition to try to hunt down Pancho Villa. The National Guard units were sent to cities all over the border, including Nogales, to guard them from potential attack.
0: Meanwhile, World War I started in 1914, and in early 1917, a telegram from German Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmermann was intercepted and decoded. In this telegram, Germany pledged to return Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas to Mexico if Mexico joined the war and fought against the United States. So, after nearly a decade of ongoing threats stemming from the Mexican Revolution, Americans were now also afraid that Mexico was going to go from being neutral in the war to actively fighting against the United States, even though the fact that there was still a revolution going on and it had been going on for years made that pretty unlikely.
1: The Zimmerman telegram was a major factor in the United States' decision to finally enter World War I in April of 1917. And when that happened, the National Guard troops that had been stationed along the U.S.-Mexico border were called up to federal service. Replacing them in Nogales were the U.S. Army's 35th Infantry and 10th Cavalry Regiments. The 10th Cavalry was an all-black unit under the command of white officers and was better known as part of the Buffalo Soldiers. As in other cities on the border, a rifle club was also established in Nogales, which was meant to act as a civilian fighting force if one was needed.
0: On January 18, 1918, a German agent named Lothar Witzke was apprehended in Nogales, Sonora he had an encrypted letter on his person that was addressed to the German ambassador in Mexico City. It read in part, quote, Strictly secret, the bearer of this is a subject of the German Empire, who travels as a Russian under the name of Pablo Vabersky. He is a German secret agent. Please furnish him on request. Protection and assistance also advance him on demand, up to 1,000 pesos of Mexican gold, and send his code telegrams to this embassy as official official consular dispatches. It was signed, von Eckhart. That was Heinrich von
1: Eckhart, German foreign minister, who was also the recipient of the Zimmermann Telegram. Witzke was tried in August of 1918 and sentenced to death. His sentence was commuted to life in prison after the end of the war, and he was later pardoned.
0: All of this led to increasingly higher border security in Nogales, which we will talk about after a quick sponsor break.
2: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: Starting in the summer of 1918, authorities, especially American authorities, started putting a lot heavier restrictions on what could happen at the Ambos-Nogales border. For example, suddenly there were a lot of new rules about how much and what kind of food people could take from the United States into Mexico. In the summer of 1918, authorities in the U.S. threatened to close the border entirely if authorities in Mexico didn't put an end to what was described as food running.
1: And the border itself became more controlled. No longer was it a situation where you could simply cross the street or where children could play across the borderline two official crossing points were established. When residents on both sides balked at suddenly having only two places to cross when they had previously been completely free to come and go, Nogales, Sonora Mayor Felix B. Peñaloza ordered a barbed wire fence to be placed along the Mexican side. This was a gesture of goodwill on the mayor's part. He framed it as a way to make it easier for American border agents to do their jobs. He suggested to his counterparts in Arizona that they do the same on their side of the border to contribute to the overall security.
0: In August of 1918, the U.S. State Department started restricting how Mexicans could enter the United States through Nogales. Mexican laborers with a passport were allowed two entries per day, and that was it. Non-workers were allowed only one entry per week. People really bristled at this idea, especially Mexican workers who had jobs in Arizona. And people who had families on the other side of the line. There was also an immediate economic impact on businessmen in Arizona who relied on customers from Sonora and vice versa. I mean, when your town had been pretty much an entire international community where you came and went freely, people were economically really connected to each other. Duties collected at the customs houses were also a major source of revenue, particularly in Sonora. And that was greatly affected by the reduction in traffic across the border as well. And as tensions continued to escalate, Mexicans reported increasing incidents
1: of mistreatment at the hands of U.S. border officials. It was everything from just general rudeness to physically being shoved out of border agents' offices. It was enough for Mexican consul Jose Garza Zertucci to write up a report to the Mexican Secretariat of Foreign Affairs, detailing a range of insults and injustices.
0: Then on August 27, 1918, a Mexican carpenter named Zeferino Gil Lamadrid was returning home after doing a job in Arizona. He was a well known person in Ambos Nogales and he was carrying a bulky package. He had already stepped onto the Mexican side of the border when a U.S. customs agent named Arthur Barber told him to turn around and come back and have that package inspected.
1: Guards on the Mexican side of the crossing told Gil LaMadrid to ignore Barber. He was already in Mexico, and he did not need to turn around. Gil LaMadrid was not sure what to do, and he froze. And then Private William Clint from the U.S. 35th Infantry pointed his rifle at Gil to encourage him to come back to the U.S. side and have the package inspected. Somebody,
0: it is not clear if it was Clint or someone else, fired a shot. Gil dropped to the ground. Apart from it being totally reasonable to hit the deck when you hear a gunshot in your vicinity while somebody had been pointing a weapon at you, at least two Mexicans had also been shot and killed at the border in Nogales while trying to cross over the prior 12 months. The guards on the Mexican side of the border believed that
1: Gil LaMadrid had been killed. In response, one guard named Francisco Gallegos shot at the Americans, hitting Clint in the face and wounding him. Agent Barber returned fire, killing both Gallegos and another Mexican guard.
0: At that point, Gil LaMadrid got up and ran.
1: There was a Mexican Federal Army garrison nearby, but most of the men stationed there were away from the area fighting rebels when this happened. So Mexican civilians went home and grabbed their personal rifles and began trying to defend Nogales, Sonora from the U.S. Army. Most of them took up sniper positions in homes and on roofs. In the words of Captain Roy V. Morlidge of the 10th Cavalry, I told the men to follow me, not far along before we got a lot of fire. There was so much it was hard to tell where it was coming from. Also, it seemed as though everybody in Nogales was shooting from the windows toward the border.
0: This became a massive gun battle. It was mainly between the U.S. Army troops and Mexican civilian snipers, although that civilian rifle club that had been established in Nogales, Arizona, was also involved. Eventually, the 35th Infantry also set up and employed a machine gun from a hill on the Arizona side.
1: Mayor Peñaloza was in a meeting at Nogales-Sonora City Hall when all of this started. — He tied a handkerchief to his cane as an improvised white flag, and he went out into the street to try to stop the gunfire. He waved his flag and he begged the civilians on the Mexican side to stop shooting. He was shot from the Arizona side, although it is not clear by whom, and he died within the hour.
0: The mayor's death made the residents of Nogales, Sonora, even angrier. They already felt like they'd been facing months of mistreatment and abuse from overbearing American border agents, and now they were being shot at and their mayor was dead. More civilians became involved in the fighting, and women on the Sonora side painted red crosses on sheets and tried to establish a field hospital. Jose Garza
1: Zertucci got in touch with the Lieutenant Colonel Frederick J. Herman of the 10th Cavalry, who was the acting sub-district commander. Zertucci proposed that both sides raise a white flag and mutually agree to stop shooting. Herman told Zertucci to go to hell, saying later, quote, American troops don't carry white flags and don't use them. Later, Herman would confirm to a Senate committee that he had told the Mexican consul to go to
0: hell. It's not a very diplomatic response to that request and Herman told Zertucci that if Nogales-Sonora didn't raise their white flag in the next 10 minutes, that the U.S. Army was going to go across the border and burn the whole city down. Acting Mayor Jesus Palma, who had assumed that role after the death of Mayor Pinaloza, ordered a white flag to be raised over the Nogales-Sonora Customs House at about 7.45 p.m., although some scattered gunfire continued after it was raised. The official report
1: on this from the Mexican Army listed the Mexican death toll at 15, 12 of them civilians. The civilians included at least two children and a woman who was hanging up her wash when she was shot. Also killed on the Mexican side were one soldier and two guards. Reports on the American side listed seven dead, two officers, three enlisted men, and two civilians. But the U.S. authorities estimated that the death toll in Sonora was actually much higher than the initial report, with more than 100 people killed, and there were many injuries on both sides.
0: When the U.S. War Department heard what happened, they contacted Brigadier General Rosy Cabell at nearby Fort Huachuca to investigate. Mexican President Venustiano Carranza ordered the Sonoran governor, Plutarco Ellis Cayes, to investigate as well the border was closed for almost 24 hours and civilians in Nogales, Sonora were ordered to turn in their weapons, although not all of them did.
1: Cabo and Kayez met, along with interpreters, on August 28th. Unlike the phone call between Zertucci and Herman, this seems to have been an overall positive and productive meeting. Both sides expressed regret for what had happened the day before and genuinely wanted to prevent any further violence.
0: But that night, Private Edward Stiller was on guard near the 35th Infantry's machine gun. He and everybody else that was stationed there had been ordered not to respond to any shots from the Mexican side. But when somebody fired a shot from Nogales, Sonora, the soldiers manning the machine gun returned fire. More shots were fired, and Stiller was hit in the leg and wounded. After he learned about this incident, Cabul warned Caius that if shots continued to be fired from the Mexican side, the army would have to cross the border to pursue the culprits. But the next day, August 29th, Private
1: Stiller left the hospital, walked back to the hill where the machine gun was stationed, and started firing his gun across the line into Mexico. He hit and wounded a Mexican soldier who was standing guard, and Cabal had him arrested.
0: During the earlier meeting between Cabul and Caius, Cabell had asked Caius to stop this gunfire that kept sporadically happening from the Mexican side. Caius had said that these shots were being fired by irresponsible civilians and that it was pretty much out of his control. But after Cabell had Stiller arrested, he went back to Caius and said that he was willing to discipline his soldiers when they broke the orders not to fire, but that he also needed assurances from Caius that he was taking steps on the Sonora side. Caius agreed to try to apprehend the shooters on the Mexican side, and although there were a few more stray gunshots after this, that was the end of most of the fighting. We're gonna talk about
1: the investigations and the aftermath of all of this, but first we're gonna pause for a little sponsor break.
2: inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a there. available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and slash hyper Gig for details
0: after the battle of ambos nogales Authorities on both sides of the border tried to pinpoint and address the issues that had contributed to the incident in the first place. Cabell conducted an investigation of the customs procedures on the Arizona side of the border and his ultimate conclusion was that the root cause of this incident was resentment from the ongoing mistreatment of Mexicans who were trying to cross the border.
1: As a result... One U.S. border officer was fired for improper conduct because of his ongoing mistreatment of Mexicans when they were trying to cross. The investigation cited, quote, frequent cases of insolence and overbearing conduct. Then-Lieutenant Colonel Herman was also demoted and transferred out of Nogales.
0: Authorities in both Sonora and Arizona also changed how the border agents, the guards, other servicemen at the border were armed. They started carrying sidearms and sometimes clubs instead of rifles to try to diffuse some of the tension.
1: The barbed wire fence that had been placed along the border leading up to this was intended to be temporary. And at this point, there were some other temporary fences along the border as well. Most of them were put up because of security fears due to the Mexican Revolution and World War I. But in a couple of cases, it was to try to keep livestock from crossing the border. But after the events of August 27th, 1917, Kabul recommended that the fence in Nogales be lengthened and made permanent. And this became the first permanent barrier at the U.S.-Mexico border.
0: After the end of the war, Senator Albert Fall of New Mexico called for congressional hearings into various issues at the U.S.-Mexico border, A number of businesses and political leaders really wanted the United States to intervene in Mexico, mostly to try to protect business and financial interests that were being affected by the Mexican Revolution. In Fall's case, this was interest in an oil company. The hearings were meant to try to convince President Woodrow Wilson to invade Mexico.
1: The Battle of Ambos Nogales was a big part of these hearings, and while they didn't entice President Woodrow Wilson to invade Mexico, they did influence how Americans understood what had happened at Nogales for decades. Fred Herman, now a captain, gave testimony at these hearings that was at various points dishonest and disingenuous, but which continued to be repeated as fact for decades.
0: He claimed that in the days leading up to the Battle of Ambos Nogales, he had received intelligence reports of strange, well-supplied Mexicans and unfamiliar white men in Nogales, Sonora. He said that he believed, based on these reports, that Nogales, Sonora had been infiltrated by German agents and was preparing an attack.
1: Herman also claimed that he had received an anonymous letter from someone claiming he was a former major in Pancho Villa's army who had grown disillusioned and disgusted with Villa and the brutalities of his fighting force. The letter claimed that there would be an attack on Nogales, Arizona by a Mexican force with
0: German support around August 25th. But it doesn't appear that there's a copy of that intelligence report or the letter anywhere. There was no mention of either of them in Kabul's investigation into the incident. And on top of that, Herman also described what happened on August 27th in a way that was variously just not right. He said that most of the people who were fighting in Sonora were soldiers when most of them were really civilians. He also said that the mayor, who had been shot literally while waving a white flag, had had a rifle in his hands at the time. When I say that these things are still repeated as fact, like, when I was doing research for this podcast, I had a lot of them written down as fact in my notes as I was reading articles about them, and then I was like, but whatever happened with that the whole German thing, like that why didn't that ever come up in any of this resolution part? And it's because it doesn't appear that anybody said anything about that until these congressional hearings that were way after the fact. So there's suspicion that like none of that ever even really happened in terms of getting a letter and these intelligence reports.
1: The fence that was erected in 1918 was made of barbed wire. It was later replaced with chain link and then with large pieces of corrugated steel. The current barrier was placed in 2011 and it cost nearly $12 million. It's between 18 and 30 feet tall. That's between 5.5 and 9 meters. And it's made of steel tubes reinforced with concrete with four inch or 10 centimeter gaps in between. This design was meant to allow law enforcement and border patrol to see what was happening on the other side of the wall, But it also had the side effect of allowing family members and friends who lived on opposite sides of the wall to see and talk to one another. In addition to places for people to cross the border, the wall also has a port
0: for livestock. Especially on the Sonora side, there's a lot of artwork along the wall. Some of it's formerly sanctioned art installations and some of it's graffiti. A lot of it is expressing objection to the wall and to the policies that led it to still be there.
1: There is still a lot of traffic between Sonora and Arizona, although that has waned as the border has become increasingly militarized, a process that started in the 1980s and 90s. But the two cities still have a lot of overlap, with many residents having friends and family on the other side of the border. Nogales, Arizona is much smaller. It's about 20,000 people compared to Nogales, Sonora's 250,000. Interestingly, both cities have the same surface and groundwater sources, and the wastewater for both is treated at the Nogales International Wastewater Treatment Plant in Rio Rico, Arizona.
0: The Battle of Ambos-Nogales is commemorated more on the Sonora side than on the Arizona side, including a ballad that was written at the time and is still sung today. There's also a memorial to the defenders of Nogales-Sonora in the Mexican Customs House there, which lists the names of the confirmed dead.
1: So the permanent wall through Ambo's Nogales was erected after a violent cross-border conflict with the intent that it would prevent something similar in the future. And officials have increasingly relied on it as a physical barrier to stop illegal border crossings by everyone from immigrants to drug and weapon smugglers. But it hasn't really stopped any of that. In spite of having been designed to deter climbing, people still climb over it daily, sometimes carrying all kinds of contraband.
0: Yeah, every article that you read about this wall today is like, and there are still people climbing over it all the time. Also, on October 10th, 2012, unarmed 16 year old Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez was shot 10 times in the back, four blocks from his home in Nogales, Sonora, by U.S. Border Patrol agent Lonnie Schwartz. Schwartz fired 16 times from the United States into Mexico, and he said that he was acting in self defense. Agents were in the middle of pursuing two people who were climbing over the fence with bundles of marijuana, and agents reported that Rodriguez and other people on the Mexican side were throwing rocks at them to try to distract them in their pursuit. There is some security footage, though, that raises doubts about that accusation, and Rodriguez's family has maintained that he was not the type of kid to throw rocks at a border patrol officer. Schwartz was indicted years later, and he was found not guilty of second-degree murder in April of 2018. The jury was not able to reach a verdict in two lesser manslaughter charges in the case.
1: As a final note, Ambos Nogales is not the only binational community in the immediate vicinity. About 60 miles, that's about 97 kilometers to the west is Tohono O'odham Nation. The tribal headquarters is in Sells, Arizona but about 2,000 tribal members live in Sonora. This has its own complexities, but the border through the Tohono O'odham Nation has, at least for the past century, been much more open than the border through Ambo's Nogales.
0: Obviously, the nation is working to change that. The nation being the United States, not the Tohono O'odham Nation. Before we get to listener mail, we have something on a much, much lighter note to talk about. Which is that we have a new store. Yeah. Where listeners can come and check out t-shirts and uh what else? Other goodies. There
1: are uh notebooks and uh things like phone cases and all kinds of
0: fun stuff. Uh, that you can get at our tea public store. It is at teepublic.com slash stuff you missed in history class. Uh and I know we we have some particular favorite shirt designs. and there we have a shirt that says, "Look at the babies from our Virginia Apgard episode, which is the thing that people still tweeted us whenever Virginia Apgard comes up in the news for some reason. And if you
1: are like me, a little bit more of a ten year old, there is a really fun shirt uh, design based on uh, our long ago automata episode that features Volkkanson's famous pooping duck, <laughs> which was a robot. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you can check those out. And as well as, like, there is a a fun design that's just our, our standard show logo uh, and lots of other fun stuff and adding more all the time. So you can check that out, get fun stuff. I really, really can say uh, without hesitation, I have a probably mm, in the three digits of... <laughs> of public shirts that I have acquired over the years. I love them. They last beautifully, and I uh, wear them all the time. So uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy them as well.
0: I also have some listener mail. Hooray! This listener mail is from Leah. Leah actually sent us a couple of weeks ago, and and at this point, it's going to be many more weeks before this episode even comes out because we are getting ahead of things to prepare for our upcoming tour Leah says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I'm writing in as a longtime listener of the show who, like many others, greatly appreciates how much you've both improved my commute and many road trips. I wanted to reach out because your episode about the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay was one of my favorites. I'd been planning to take a trip to see her home of Steepletop for some time, but when I went to check its hours for tours recently, I found out that the property is in danger of closing to the public at the end of the 2018 season. Long story short, I contacted Malay's literary executor to find out more about why, and I ended up writing this article on how people can help. Essentially, the society that manages the property has been operating at a loss, even as more and more people find out about Malay and visit the site. I thought I would share, as I probably wouldn't have found out about this if not for your episode about her. Thank you both for all your hard work on the podcast. Regards, Leah. Thank you, Leah, for this note. Uh, I'm on the Steepletop mailing list, so I had gotten a note about this back at the beginning of the spring, I think. Uh, but we haven't really mentioned it on the show. Um, that visiting Steepletop was part of the research for that episode. The, it's a two-part episode on Edna St. Vincent Millay, um, and it is a, a beautiful house and a beautiful grounds with a beautiful poet <laughs> that's connected to all of it. So um, we will put a link to that article. Uh, in the show notes for this episode. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're also all over social media at Missed and History. That's where you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. Uh, you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done together and a searchable archive of all the episodes we have ever done ever. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com schedule release to learn more. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?